I'll just be candid with you. This passage, I had quite a lot of difficulty of trying to figure out how to make a sermon out of. So uh, I'm giving it my best shot. And, uh, you know, hopefully if you feel it's a little heady at points, just forgive me. Stay with me. We'll do the best we can. So, um, so Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 29. And hear the word of the Lord. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in the synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word that uh, speaks uh, both words of hope and inspiration, but also addresses the dark corners of human life. And as we give our minds and our hearts to this text, Uh, we pray that your spirit would lead us to the hope of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And so we need you to be our teacher, our instructor. Give us ears to hear this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about the topic of violence, the role of violence in human life and human society. And, you know, of course, uh, violence is everywhere. I mean, you know, it's not just in terrorist bombings, but violence is in middle school playgrounds, you know, bullies picking on other kids. Uh, Violence is a massive part of our existence in the world. And, uh, you know, it's an important topic for us to talk about as Christians because we are, you know, when we come to follow Jesus, believe in Jesus, we become a part of his kingdom, which is a kingdom of peace. Actually, if you read some of the Old Testament uh, prophets, you know, when they describe what the, God's kingdom is going to be like, when it comes, oftentimes the description is the ending of war and, and you know, this uh, expansion of peace. Let me give you an example. This is from Isaiah 2, verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of uh, peace. Well, uh, this passage I just read to you, those were the words of Jesus, speaking during the last week of his life. He's, uh, he's come to spend the, the uh, Passover week in Jerusalem. He's had a number of confrontations with the religious leaders there. And he's been preaching about God's kingdom and about how his kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus brings, is not like the kingdoms of the world. And one of the things that he's going to warn next week, if you come back next week, in the passage next week, is he says, in the generations to come after Jesus, there are going to be a number of people who are going to come saying, I am the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the king that's going to bring in God's kingdom. And their 
plan for bringing in God's kingdom is to form a rebellion who, is gonna, who are going to uh, uh, bring in a, a rebellion against the Roman Empire where they are going to say that the kingdom of God is going to come through an act of violence. And Jesus is going to warn his disciples and say, don't follow after them. You're going to be tempted to follow after them, but that's not how my kingdom comes. And he's even going to predict, predict we'll see this next week, that, um, that as the, the Jews in his generation are going to you know, form an army to f- try to fight against the Romans, the Romans are going to come against them violently and destroy Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And next week, Jesus is going to look over Jerusalem as he foresees what's going to happen, and he weeps and grieves over the fate that's going to happen to this city. And so, um, that's next week. But this week, we're going to talk about the role of violence and what the kingdom of Jesus Christ has to say about violence. And in this passage, particularly, we're going to answer three questions. Where does violence come from? What does violence do? And how is violence stopped? Where does it come from? What does it do? And how is it stopped? And, you know, I just have to say at the beginning, is violence is a very big kind of sociological topic. You know, I understand my treatment here is going to be amateur. Um, but, you know, there's so much you can say about it. But I'm going to try to just draw out specifically some things from this passage. What does this passage have to teach us about violence? And we'll, we'll give it our best shot. So here we go. First, where does violence come from? And there's two interesting answers to that question in this passage, that violence comes from a hatred of fathers and from a hatred of truth. Violence comes from a hatred of fathers and a hatred of truth. So what do we mean by that? First, violence comes from a hatred of fathers. Now you notice that there in verse 39. Follow along with me here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that Jerusalem, in the centuries before Jesus' coming, had a history of uh, murdering, killing the prophets, the messengers that God had sent to them. And the leaders in Jerusalem in in Jesus' day um, deeply believed that they were not like their fathers. Our fathers killed the prophets, we would never do that. We would never be like them. And we can't believe how despicable they were for doing such a thing. And they even made these monuments, these tombs that were decorated tombs of the prophets to kind of remember that we honored the prophets, but our fathers murdered them and killed them. And, um, of course, you know, the great irony of that is that these words are written days, if not hours, before they were going to call for Jesus to be crucified. You know, Jesus is, you know, not just the greatest prophet, he's God's own son who's come. And they're, they're, they are going to, they're just like their fathers. They had somehow become the very thing they hated. These leaders had become the very thing that they hated. Now, we live in a, what you might call a therapeutic generation. Um, we are a, a generation that is hyper aware of the failings of our fathers. Um, you know, much of our personal reflection about our lives, I know for many of you, you know, we, when we think about our lives and how do we become who we are and how do we deal with our problems comes from a reflection about, you know, where we came from and from our families, and, uh, which, which uh, of course, I think is a wise thing to do, but the result of this can often happen in our 
uh, generation is it can form a deep resentment against our parents for their failings. You know, some of you might feel that way. When you started a family, you're like, I'm not going to be anything like my parents. They were clueless. They didn't know what they were doing. And I swear, I won't be anything like them. And maybe you've had this experience, the haunting realization to feel all that resentment against your parents and to find out that in many ways you are just like the people that you hate the most. You are just like them. And actually, you know, I shared with some of you that when I was a teenager, I got sent away to this boys' school as a behavioral modification program. I was there for a year and a half when I was a teenager. And in this school, we had these seminars that we went to, you know, where all these kids were going to kind of figure out why, you know, why were they on drugs and dropping out of school and doing all these things. And a big part of these seminars would just reflect on the families that they'd come from. And they talked about their dads and their, you know, their parents and things that had happened. And, uh, and, you know, one of the things that was uh, so amazing is all these kids who were saying that they had these fathers who were distant and were angry were now runaways who got in fights with the police and, you know, fights at school and things like that. And their whole life was a protest against their fathers, and yet they were exactly like their fathers, distant and angry. And this is the great tragedy of violence, is that it is those who are hurt by violence that become the violent. When you are hurt by violence, it makes you one of the violent. The thing that you hated most and you resented most that was done to you has a tendency to make you like that. It makes you defensive. It makes you protective. It makes you hard. And, uh, you know, if I could just make a comment here, you know, um, this is an important thing to reflect on. You know, for many of you, if you've experienced real disappointment or mistreatment or violence in your life, and you think about what does it look like to deal with that, as much as you need to, you know, recognize the dysfunction that was there, you know, the wrong that had been done to you, to, to know that God grieves those wrongs, the healed person, the person who has dealt with those things, is not the person who is bitter at their parents, but the person who has is, who is, uh, come to find God as their true father, the only one who can keep his promises, the only one who's gentle and kind and loving and follows through. And because they found God to be their father, they can look at their parents with all their failings and feel compassion for them that they're sinners just like us. And, that, you know, that's, of course, a, 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 you know, a big step, but it's the only thing that keeps us from becoming like the violence that it affected us. Because um, violence comes from a hatred of fathers. And the only way to overcome that is to be sober and honest that our parents were not perfect but also to feel a deep compassion for them because they are sinners in need of grace, just like us. So first interesting answer to that question, where does violence come from? Violence comes from a hatred of fathers. Second, violence comes from a hatred of truth. And you look at, you know, Jesus is talking about the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and, and he says that they are going to lash out violently at some people. And who are the people that these leaders are going to lash out violently against? Look at verse 32. It says, Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of you will, fl- uh, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. That's really interesting. Jesus is talking about over the next 40 years. You know, Jesus has been training these disciples who are now going to go out into the world and they're going to share the gospel and they're going to talk about Christ and His kingdom and you know talk about uh, grace and forgiveness. And uh, 
And this is describing what's going to happen to these disciples who are going to be sent out. And this is all going to happen within a generation. You see that there in verse 36. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And, you know, if I could just make one note here. um, You know, some of you maybe wondered, does Jesus ever actually claim to be God? You know, does he, you know, some of you know that Christians, that's what Christians believe, that Jesus was God. And often when Jesus claims to be God, it's very subtle. In a passage like this, maybe you caught that in verse 34. You see what he says? Therefore, I send you prophets. Jesus says, I'm not one of the prophets. I'm the one who sends the prophets. Who's the one who sends prophets? You know, what is a prophet? The prophet is a messenger of God. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who sends the prophets and the wise men and the scribes. I'm the one who's sending them out. And what he says is that um, uh, these people are going to come to tell you the truth about my kingdom. These people are going to tell you the truth about who you are, about your own sinfulness, the state of your own heart. These people are going to tell you about God's grace and about what transformation looks like in Jesus. And he says to these leaders, you are going to hate them for telling you the truth. You look at the response to hearing the truth. They're going to kill, crucify, flog, and persecute. And that raises a question, you know, why does hearing the truth produce such violence? Well, I think we experience that in our own lives. You know, if you have someone who comes and, you know, confronts you about a character flaw in your life, you know, they observe something, they're going to kind of call you out on it. How do you respond in that? you pretty quickly start finding some character flaws in them. You know, you're self-righteous, you're conceited, like coming and calling me out. You think you're so much better than me. And you know what I mean? We immediately deflect the truth onto others because the truth hurts. You know, hearing the truth and being called out like, who, I'm, sin is a real part of my life. And to face those things are painful. And so we want to deflect the pain of the truth onto other people. And so there's a vicious impulse in every human being to justify themselves. And it's in our desire to say that I'm righteous, I am right, that we hurt other people. And this is one of the main sources of violence in the world, is a hatred of facing the truth about ourselves. Now, you might respond to that and say, you know, I kind of think it's the opposite. I don't think it's that people don't want the truth that makes them violent. I think it's the truth that makes people violent. You know, you look at ISIS, bombing people, doing all kinds of acts of violence. It's because they believe they have the truth. And they're going to fight for the truth. And if people disagree with them about the truth, they're going to oppress them. And that's what happens when people think that they have the truth. They take that truth and they impose it on all the people around them. And they use it to think that they're superior to other people who disagree with them. I think the truth is a source of violence in the world. You know, how do we respond to that? Well, actually, I think that the Bible recognizes this fact. And it brings us to a dilemma, is that we need the truth. And yet there is a way, a certain kind of truth that can be used as a weapon. And so what we need is a truth that exposes and reveals the violence inside of each one of our hearts. We need a truth that names the violence. What is that truth? Well, we're going to answer that. But we have to answer one other question before we we do. So first, where does violence come from? Violence comes from a hatred of fathers and from a hatred of the truth. But this leads to a second question. What then does violence do? What does violence do? What role does it play in human society? And, you know, throughout history, 
violence has actually been the foundation for many human cultures. You know, you think about it. Okay, we're all violent people. We're all sinners, the Bible says. You're all envious of one another. We all want to be better than one another. We're competitive. I want what you have. I, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm angry that you have things that I don't have. How do people ever get along with one another? And some sociologists would say that the bond of most human cultures historically is communal acts of violence. Violence is the thing that holds cultures together. You might think, you know, I, I don't get that. Um, but, you know, you just look at American culture. If you were to tell the history of American history, how would you tell that history? I mean, at least for me, the only way I think about human history is through our wars, right? It's like the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, to Iraq wars. That's how we structure our story is through communal acts of violence. I'm not saying those, whether those wars were right or wrong. I'm just saying that coming together in an act of violence has a tremendous power to unify a people and to unify even such a massive society as the United States of America. And uh, violence forms human cultures, and you can see that in this passage. Look at what it says there in verse 35. So that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now, in this one verse, Jesus basically gives a whole a summary of the world up to his point. It's a summary of the Old Testament. He first talks about Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve at the very beginning of the, of the Old Testament in Genesis. And then he tells the story of Zechariah, who was murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, which comes from the book of Second Chronicles, which in the Hebrew Bible was the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so he's saying that the whole story of the Old Testament is from beginning to end these acts of violence. And in particular, if you know the story of Cain and Abel, uh, Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve, our, our first parents. And Cain was envious of his brother Abel and murdered him. And if you ever read Genesis chapter 4, do you know what almost the next thing Cain did was? He built a city. He started a city. And it was Cain's sons who were the, those who began um, cultural innovations. You know, uh, his great-grandchildren made tents, and they had livestock, and they played music, and they made weapons. And the two things that come out of the line of Cain are culture and violence. And if you go down to the seventh generation from, uh, from uh, Cain is his great-grandson Lamech, and it says this in Genesis 4, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold then Lamech's is 77-fold. And so there's this question of how is violence used to form societies and bond people together? It's a really interesting question. And, you know, I read a, a book this last year by a guy named Rene Girard. Rene Girard was an anthropologist and, um, and a philosopher who had done extensive studies on especially pre-Christian, um, uh, pre-Christian societies and specifically the myths and the rituals of sacrifice that held these uh, communities together. And what Rene Girard says uh, makes this argument that uh, pre-Christian cultures, which are marked by these myths and rituals of sacrifices, were ultimately formed by an act of violence. Some of you may know this, like uh, Rome was founded when Romulus murdered his brother uh, Remus. It's an act of violence. It was the beginning of that whole civilization. 
and human sacrifice was an important part of many pre-Christian cultures that bound them together. They would come together for a ritual act of killing that bound the whole community together. And uh, what he says is that when you have all these communities that are filled with people who are envious and they're fighting with one another, and how is this community going to be formed? Everyone's angry, everyone hates one another. How can they ever have any sense of unity? What ends up happening is these communities find a scapegoat, an individual in the community that all of them turn their corporate hatred upon and they, you know, they have a stoning or a lynching where this one person is killed in front of the whole community and everyone is complicit in the act. And what happens is during this killing where everyone was fighting with one another, all of a sudden they feel this sense of calm come over them because there's this profound unity in this one act of injustice. And they begin to think, a God must have been among us. There's a supernatural power has been unleashed in this one killing. And so all of a sudden, the thing that's forming them is an act of injustice that becomes the very foundation of their society. And then they have these ritual killings trying to repeat that act. But they don't know that they're blinding themselves to the fact that their whole society, their whole village, their whole community is built on an act of injustice. And so the whole structure of the community allows oppression and violence. And this has been true of of pagan cultures throughout history. And so what does violence do? Is violence has this strange power to bind whole communities to injustice. Violence forms whole systems, you know, human societies that are built on, dependent on acts of oppression and injustice and slavery. And, you know, some of us, you you look at some cultures that, you know, have profound injustice in them, and you think, how can these whole cultures be blind to this? How can they just go on mistreating the weak and the poor like this? And, you know, why aren't they upset about it? And he says the answer is because they are blind. They do not see the violence. And that's what uh, uh, Jesus keeps saying about the scribes and the Pharisees, is that they are blind guides. They don't know what they're doing. And of course, when Jesus dies on the cross, what are his words? Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. And he means it. Humanity is blindly trapped in a vicious cycle of violence. And so this leads to our third question, is how then is violence stopped in the world? And I'm going to tell you, the gospel has a profound answer to this. Profound answer. I want to read this to you. This is from uh, Colossians chapter 2. This is a, a brief meditation that the Apostle Paul gives on the cross of Jesus. This is what he says. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then listen to this comment about the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What Paul says is that Jesus Christ on the cross has disarmed the rulers and authorities of the world. Now, who are the rulers and authorities? I think those are spiritual and earthly powers that oppress people with violence and keep people down to keep themselves in power. Jesus has disarmed them. And how did he disarm them? By making a public display of their violence. 
making a public display and triumphing over their violence in the resurrection. I'll just tell you what this means. We have a world filled with cultures that have found scapegoats, innocent people that are killed, and in that justice, uh, in that injustice, societies are brought together. And so the creator of this world himself came into the world to become one of those scapegoats. He was an innocent victim that suffered injustice in our place, and it was a public display to the world to show the world, this is what you're like. And when he rose from the dead, he showed that the life that is in God is a different kind of power to bind together that is different than the kind of power of violence. It is a nonviolent power. And uh, this is what Rene Girard, and uh, if, you, if you turn to page three in your bulletin, I, I put a quote for you from Rene Girard. And that he says, when the Son of God becomes a victim, he defeated the powers of violence in that on the cross of Jesus, something changed in the world. This is a historical fact that something changed in the world when Jesus died on the cross. This is what he says. The complex influence of Christianity spreads in the form of a kind of knowledge unknown to pre-Christian societies. And it continually penetrates them in a more and more profound fashion. This knowledge which Paul says comes from the cross, is not esoteric at all. To grasp it, we need only to ascertain that we all now observe and understand situations of oppression and persecution that earlier societies did not detect or took to be inevitable. And what Rene Girard says is when any of you feel any sense of burden for a victim or someone who's unjustly, you know, mistreated, the weak or the poor, you feel any burden of that in anywhere in society, he says that this was only awakened in you when the world beheld the cross of Jesus. Before the cross and the resurrection, human societies only believed that violence and oppression is necessary for harmony among humans. And the resurrection of Jesus, the final scapegoat, says it's not true. You can have unity without violence. And the cross and the resurrection displayed to the world the violent foundations of all pagan cultures. And so one of the amazing claims of the Bible is that violence is only stopped through the cross of Jesus. And so, you know, as we come back to that question, I asked a question earlier. What is the truth that we don't use for violence? But what is the truth that exposes the violence in our own hearts, in our own societies? The cross is that truth. The cross is the truth that has caused Christians to sympathize with the weak and the victim and those who have injustice brought against them. It is the cross that is called for justice throughout the world. And it's also in the cross where we get a new father. Jesus reconciles us to our God, our father, the God who will always keep his promises, who is faithful to us, is not violent to us, who's gentle with us, walks with us. But also... In the cross, we get a new kind of society. That's what we are here. All the societies that were bound together with a communal act of violence, a ritual sacrifice of blood, we have this new ritual where there's no blood, where we say Jesus was the final scapegoat. And this is the hope of peace where we come to his table as forgiven sinners, embraced as God's children, And the hope for peace in the world is only in the gospel of the cross.